Man, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm hyped up. If, if, Pastor Lane, if I get too crazy, will you just give me, give me one of these? I'm, I'm a little crazy. The, the, last, yesterday, uh, I was, I was kind of bouncing off the walls a little bit, excited about this, this sermon. And my wife was like, okay, okay, what, just, what's the deal? What do you, why are, what's it about? And I was like, okay, when, when Robert Morris uh, at, at Gateway Church, when he reads the Bible, he sees a God who is a giver. When T.D. Jakes reads the Bible, he sees a God who is a restorer of the broken. And me, when I see, when I read the Bible, I see a God who is reconciling, reconciling all that was broken. Do you, do you believe there's something, that there's something for you today in this message? I believe there is because I've been praying for you all week that just the people who need to come and hear this today would come. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that as you have guided the meditations of my heart this week, so also would you guide the words of my mouth this morning for your glory, and that by a miracle of your spirit, you would take every word and transform it in every ear into the message that you have tailored for every heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is your favorite movie genre? Somebody give give, give me something. Action, okay? Okay. Rom-com. Say again? Crime drama. Okay. What else? Okay. For, for me, it's sci-fi and fantasy. Y'all know. If you're a Star Wars fan, if you're a Star Wars fan and you listen, there's a Star Wars quote hidden in every sermon. You, you got to listen for it, though. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Michael was like, hey, I heard it. It was this. And I was like, no, that's just how I talk because of Star Wars. It's not, it's not, that wasn't the plan. It was more obscure than that. But, but for, for me... Since I met my wife, I've discovered my romantic streak, and it's all about the romantic comedies, okay? Now I'm genuinely surprised when on Netflix I find a romantic comedy that I haven't already seen, all right? Because we watch them all the time. Here's what I've noticed about romantic comedies. Love it or hate it, romantic comedies all follow kind of the same pattern, right? Enter the innocent protagonist, so naive in the ways of love. Maybe they just came out of a bad relationship. They meet someone of the opposite sex who does very well in dating because they are confident. Of course, boy and girl despise each other at first. That's a requirement. Then bizarre circumstances force force boy and girl to spend time together. And they discover that "Ah, they're not so bad after all, I guess. Then they get serious and they have that, that special moment where they discover they just might be falling in love. Then there's a major misunderstanding. What? He had a girlfriend all along? Right? Then uh, then they sort things out. Wait, that girl he hugged was actually his sister? (laughs) Shock, surprise. Throw in an urgent yet entertaining drive to catch them at the airport before they leave. And then they reconcile. And they have that moment the profession of love, or a marriage proposal, or maybe an instant wedding. But either way, just like in the fairy tales, they ride off in some form of a horse-drawn carriage, and they live, help me, they live happily ever after. Very good. It's all about conflicts moving toward reconciliation. My wife and I just watched a rom-com, and she's like, hey, did you like that one? I was like, yeah. I don't know. She's like, there wasn't enough conflict. It, it, it just kind of like moved toward the happy ending with not enough conflict and drama. You got to have that. Reconciliation going to happily ever after. 
That's what I want to talk about today, the miracle of reconciliation. We may start out as babies, not much long after that, innocent like the rom-com protagonist, but by the time we get to exit elementary school, we know the truth. We are not the people that we know we should be. We're estranged from God, by the, and the things we do and the things we say estrange us from other people and even ourselves. Human beings are all messed up. If you don't believe me, try spending a day with a three-year-old. I love it when parents, their, their first child, and they go, oh, our child is going through the terrible twos. And I just smile and nod. <laughs> Buckle up. Wait till the threes get here. As my best friend Jesse once said, you don't have to train disobedience and selfishness. It comes naturally. And that's not to mention when they turn 16. When we think about the, the human condition and, and how we're fallen, I remember years ago, I, I was pastoring a, a little church out in the country, and I had our kids club where the kids would come over after school, and they would sit, uh, and, and we would do crafts and games and stories and all this stuff, and I was telling the story of Adam and Eve. And there were tons of these kids, this was the only church experience they had was coming to our church on, on Wednesday afternoons. And I was telling the story of how God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and there was this fruit, and I had this big apple. I know it's not an apple in the Bible, but just go with it. It was for the kids. So, and, and like how God told them not to eat it, and they're, they're like, and I'm like, oh, and they had the apple, and we're smelling it. And the kids are like on the edge of their seat, waiting to see what's going to happen if Adam and Eve are going to eat this apple. And finally, I take a big bite out of the apple, and all the kids go, oh, like they're genuinely surprised. Like, because they've never heard the story before. And, and then I asked them, I said, are you surprised that Adam and Eve ate the apple? And they're like, no. Because we've all been there. We've all done it. We've all eaten the apple. We know that, that we're sinful. We know that if God didn't step in, our sin, it, it would destroy us. And we would destroy each other. But he did step in. In fact, he stepped down to rescue us, to reconcile us, to restore us, and that's the good news of the gospel. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the main text that I want us to look at today, and I'm going to read it fully. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, that's the direct translation from the Greek. It just says new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is it, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wonder, the majesty, the beauty of the gospel is more than I can wrap my brain around. Stanley Grant's theologian said, exactly how the great transaction transpires, how God brings us to know him is beyond comprehension. Well, that said, I'm going to attempt just enough audacity to lay out and explain the miracle of reconciliation, God's grand scheme to reconcile humanity to himself. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to sprinkle just a few little snapshots of my own story, my own journey of faith. 
When I was a teenager, I heard this story that was really my first introduction to the gospel directly. And here's how the story goes. In the ancient world, in the Mediterranean, there lived a great king who was righteous and, and, and absolute law-abiding. There were three simple laws in this land. Do not murder, do not steal, and honor, honor your parents. And, and, and the, the kingdom went beautifully. There was, there, was hard, there was hardly ever any crime because people revered their king. And one day, the royal vizier came to the king and he said, there's, there's been a theft. Somebody is stealing. And the king said, well, we, we can't have this. Yeah, you need to announce everywhere in the land that when this thief is caught, there's going to be 10 lashes. And the whole court kind of shuddered at that. A week later, the vizier came back and he said, the, the, the thieving is continuing. The king is, is incensed. This, this just doesn't happen in his kingdom. And he says, okay, send it out. It's going to be 25 lashes. Everybody's freaking out. Finally, the, the vizier comes back and it's still going on. And he sets the, the penalty at 50 lashes. People are like, even our great and powerful king probably can't survive a whipping of 50 lashes. And so it goes out into the kingdom that the punishment for this thievery is going to be 50 lashes. Then, not too long after, the vizier comes in, but he's scared. He's pale, and his voice is hollow, and he tells the king, we have found the thief. And the king says, bring him in. And the whole crowd parts to reveal the king's own mother is guilty of this thievery. The date is set for the punishment. The king, everybody wonders what the king is going to do. Is he going to hold to his standard of righteousness or is he going to be full of mercy? Is he going to choose justice or mercy? Is he going to choose grace or is he going to choose truth? Finally, the day comes and everybody gathers because they want to know what the king is going to do. There's thousands of people in this amphitheater and they bring his frail mother in and they, they, she wraps around the whipping post with her hands like this, and they, they pull her shirt back down, revealing her, her back ready to be whipped. And the king holds his hand up and says, wait. You can hear a pin drop in the amphitheater. He takes off his crown, and he lays it on the throne. And he starts walking down the stairs, and he takes off his royal robe. And then he takes off his tunic, and he walks down. And he goes up to his mother and he, put, he wraps his arms around her body and he looks at the whipmaster and says, administer the punishment. He chose both justice and mercy. You see, the cross is where the justice of God and the mercy of God kissed. This is where it all comes together, where we see the love that God has for us and yet his demand for righteousness the offer of salvation is Jesus himself, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, come to earth, took on humanity. He lived his perfect sinless life. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and his death is what accomplishes the forgiveness of sin. His resurrection is what shows that he was legitimate and his resurrection is the inauguration of the new creation. The love of God displayed by the act of Jesus, himself God, willingly dying on a cross, shows us at the same time both the ugliness of sin 
And also, it legitimizes the pain you and I have been through when we have been sinned against. If God just forgave it all, we would say, wait a second, I've been hurt. You see, Jesus took sin and death into himself so that it could die there on the cross with him. Salvation begins with justification. There's a big, fancy church word, justification. And here's how it works. The Spirit of God gives each of us just enough grace. It's called prevenient grace. There's another big word. Prevenient grace, just enough grace to be able to choose God because there's not enough good in us to be able to choose God without him. To be able to choose faith, to be able to accept the forgiveness offered in Jesus. And in that moment, when we respond in faith, when we admit that we're sinners, when we're not shocked that they ate the apple because we ate it too, and we believe Jesus is who he says he is, and we confess him as Lord, when that happens, the righteousness of Jesus is transferred to us and our sin is transferred to him. I don't know how it happens. I'm just glad it did. As we read, the Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the Ephesians, for it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For me, growing up, it, it wasn't difficult to realize that I was a sinner. I was well aware of that. And I would, I would mess up. I would disappoint my parents. I would be selfish or whatever. All, all the things that you're not supposed to do when you're a kid. And I knew that God could forgive those. But then when I ran far away from God when I was a teenager, and then I wanted to pursue God again, I was like, no, God can't forgive me now. I know that God can easily forgive the mistakes that we make. You know, when you're trying to do the right thing, but you just don't make it. I was like, but that's not me. What's me is I knew exactly what was wrong. I knew what would displease God, and I did it anyway. I did it willfully. I planned it out, premeditated sin, and God can't forgive that. And that's where I was for months and months and months and months. And one day, I was sitting in a college classroom, taking a class on the Bible, and the professor said, there is no sin so great that it cannot be covered by one drop of Jesus' blood. And that's the moment. I can take you to the exact spot where I was sitting in 1995 when I accepted that God's grace was even bigger than my willful sin. The Apostle Paul remembered that day for himself too. Remember the Apostle Paul, the guy who was going around killing Christians and imprisoning them, but he was called Saul at the time. He even oversaw the, the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Everybody laid their coats on it. You know, he held their coats while they went and stoned Stephen. It, Acts chapter 9 says he was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples. And he got special permission to arrest the followers of Jesus in Damascus. And so he got his, his party together and he set off on the road to Damascus. And on his way, there was a dramatic flash of light and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because of the flash and because of the sound and this, probably the volume, he said, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What about you? Do you remember that day when you first understood God's love and accepted his forgiveness? Think on it a moment. Remember that 
glorious day when you first realized that God loved you more than he hated your sin. And if you haven't had that day, then how about make today that day? Here's how it works. We recognize our own sinfulness. Theologian Stanley Grants again says, without recognition of personal need, we cannot receive the provision God has made in Christ. And we regret it. We're sorry for it. And, and that kind of regret includes a desire to turn away from our sin. It requires that we understand that God has provided the means of reconciliation and forgiveness. We have faith that Jesus is who he says he is and that God the Father raised him from the dead. We turn to God and dedicate ourselves to follow the example of Jesus. If that's your decision today, to see yourself as that guilty king's mother in the story, and you're ready to accept the forgiveness offered in Jesus, come find me. Come find Pastor Lane, one of our prayer partners, and we'll help you get started. The sign of the beginning of faith is repentance culminating in water baptism, where we symbolize going down into the waters like, like Jesus went down into the grave, and when we come out, raised to walk in newness of life. Here's what justification is not. It's not just death insurance to make sure that you get to spend life after death in the good place. It's not just that. It's when and how God transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's how you enter into the reign and rule of God. And the way I remember the definition of justified, forgive me if this is too simple, but I do simple best. It's just if I'd never sinned. When we are justified, it is as God sees us as if we had never sinned. But we know that that doesn't mean we stop sinning. Just because we're forgiven, we're still who we were. It's just now we're regarded as positionally righteous by God, free from the penalty of sin. Now we need to be transformed, and God begins progressively changing us, making us less and less controlled by sin. This is the part that a lot of Christians don't get. Okay, I get forgiven. Now I can move back to my life, and I'll get to live with God forever. Sweet. But, but the in-between time is just the same as it was before. There's no, there's no understanding of that God is going to progressively be saving us. He, he's going to make us less and less controlled by sin. Let me give you an example from a story. One of my favorite books is a children's book by C.S. Lewis called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it has a fantastic opening line of the book. Are you ready? There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> Eustace was a stinker. He was critical, defensive, selfish, and hateful to his cousins, Edmund and Lucy. The three of them get transported to a magical land of Narnia where anything can happen. And as you read the story, you come to despise Eustace. Because of his own selfishness and greed, he becomes a dragon. A, a representation of the, a metaphor of his sinful nature run wild and unchecked. His cousins and other traveling companions don't recognize Eustace since he's a dragon, and try as he may, they're trying to search for poor lost Eustace, and they're afraid of the dragon, and he's lonely and sad, and finally, he's sorry for how he has lived. And because of his repentance, he has an encounter with Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan immerses Eustace in a pond, 
and takes him out, and he painfully claws away the scales. And then he painfully claws away the tough skin and finally reveals Eustace the boy, who is reunited and reconciled with his cousins. I tell you all of that to read you this. Here's an excerpt from the book that explains what happens next to Eustace. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say, from that point forward, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. What we're talking about here is sanctification, the process whereby God transforms our character for good over time. Here's what God does. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us at that moment of justification. And and living in us, he helps us to become holy, like God, as the Christian life proceeds. Our Our cooperation with the Spirit is living out in daily life that thing that happened at justification, the freedom and power that we received so that we grow in Christlikeness and service to God. The Spirit carries on a war with our sinful nature, what, what the Apostle Paul simply refers to as our flesh. And the Spirit provides power for overcoming temptation and sin. But it's a constant struggle. The Apostle Paul says it like this, So I find this law at work, he says in Romans 7. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Yeah, we can relate, right? For my inner being, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war with the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's an actual transformation of our character that leads to a transformation of our lifestyle. Here's what it's not, that we often think it is. It's not willpower. Richard Foster, this this is who I'm quoting right now, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, he says it like this, willpower will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained habits of sin. By willpower, people can make a good showing for a time, but sooner or later, there will come that unguarded moment when the careless word will slip out to reveal the true condition of the heart. Willpower is incapable of bringing about the necessary transformation of the inner spirit. When I read that 20 years ago, it was so freeing because up to that point, I thought the Christian life was all about trying harder I thought the Christian life was all about, it was like, like running faster and running harder to try to, to, try to be a better runner. That, that it was about building up your ability to sin less. But that's a human-focused view of transformation. And it's simply powerless compared to God's transforming power. Okay, I'm gonna give you, if, if you'll allow me to, to Bible nerd on you for, for half a minute, Okay. 2 Peter chapter 1, I, w- I want to read you this. This is, this is the concept of theosis, okay? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. 
We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to, check this out, share his divine nature. We share in his divine nature. We become like God, which is not, shouldn't be shocking because the spirit is living in us and escape the world's corruption by human desires. Theosis is the process by which we become more and more like God because God gives us the power. The spirit lives in us. So what do we do with that? How, how do we respond to that? By our cooperation. The first thing is what Pastor Lane has been talking about all morning, from our leaders meeting to, to his, his time up here. It's the communion of saints. It's being together with the people of God. We are influenced by the people we spend time with. Jim Rohn says that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. When we worship together and study together, hang out together, encourage each other, build each other up, part of how we're transformed is by just being with the people of God. And the second thing, after the communion of saints, is our communion with God that leads to spiritual fruit. Spiritual disciplines are how we, how we place ourselves before God. I used to always think, I, I would watch my dad in the morning. My spiritual life will never catch up to my father. That's okay. But he, he, in the morning, he would just be in the living room reading his Bible and praying, reading his Bible and praying, reading his Bible, and just on and on. And, and he worked for himself, so he would just he'd go to work when he was done, 9, 10 o'clock, and work as late as he had to. He, and I was like, oh, that's what you do. Like, if you're going to be a Christian, you, you got to study and pray hours a day. That's, that's what you do. Because that's what you do out of gratitude to God for what, for forgiveness? I, I don't know. Richard Foster again. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received, not striving for. The needed change within us is God's work, not ours. The demand is for an inside job. And only God can work from the inside. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us, and here's the key, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. I used to see it as the hard work that we should do out of gratitude, but now I see that as we cooperate with the Spirit and His goal of transforming our lives, and we begin to experience and then share love and joy and peace, then we start to treat everyone with patience and kindness and generosity. I was just telling Pastor Lane and, and Pastor Michael and, and, and Becca this week, I said, I know you guys have a hard time putting up with me. I know that. But if you had just known me 10 years ago, you would know how far I've come. And 10 years from now, I, I didn't say this part, but I thought it, and hopefully 10 years from now, I'll be easier to put up with, I mean, to work with. But what about 20 years from now? Might I catch up with some of the spiritual giants like Abraham Matthew in our church? What about 40 years from now, when my time on earth is coming to a close? You see, the lifelong nature of sanctification leads us to anticipate the final aspect of salvation. As we go, we grow in enjoyment of God's presence. We grow in longing to be more like God. We begin to look forward to glorification. The Apostle Paul, under house arrest in Rome, not long before he was to be martyred for his faith, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 4. The time of my death is near. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. As if it weren't enough to have the freedom of knowing that we're forgiven. As if it weren't enough to be progressively freed from the power of sin. God promises to glorify us at the resurrection, to give us new bodies that are like Jesus' resurrected body at home, both in the physical reality of earth and the spiritual reality of heaven. Our physical bodies will no longer be subject to decay or sickness or disease. Indeed, perfect bodies that live forever. And if I'm going to live forever, I hope that God will take this uh, kind of Jonah Hill thing and make it more like a Leonardo DiCaprio thing. Not like J. Edgar Leo, but more like Inception Leo. Okay, a few of you got it. Okay. Well, not, not only do we, do we get new bodies, okay, that, that, that are, we're still ourselves, we're still fully ourselves, Becca's still laughing. Okay, so it really was funny, even though most of y'all didn't. Okay. It's, when we, when we get to that place, we're still ourselves, our mannerisms are the same, our personhood is the same. So many world religions say that, that it's about shuffling off this body, about, about leaving this behind and, and becoming part of an oversoul or maybe getting reincarnated, but ours is a transformation. Our, our soul carries with it the plan for reconstituting our body, not just resuscitating it, but a new and restored and, and better body that is fully spiritual and fully physical. Peter says it like this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me back up. Not just, not just do we get new bodies that live forever. There's also a reward that we cannot even imagine. And I can imagine quite a bit. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from, from the dead and into an inheritance. Do you work for an inheritance? No, you just receive it because you're loved. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's what glorification is not. Here is not the, the right attitude to have toward glorification. It's escapism. You know how escapism goes? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm just waiting to get out of this old place and get on to the real thing. This is the real thing. The incarnation of Jesus showed us that. Our labor is not in vain. What we do here matters into eternity. But I don't want to sit around waiting for death. I want to get busy. I want to slide into the resurrection and go, whoa, whoa. What a ride. Thank you, Jesus. I want to get busy doing the things that God would have us to do. And, and in the twinkling of an eye, the Spirit will finish his transformation of our character. There will be no more temptation. We'll be free to obey God perfectly. And we will have eternal fellowship with God and with each other and with the new creation. And that's good news because I love y'all. And I want to hang out with you forever. That's the community that God promises us in the end. And in the time I have left, I hope that like you, my perseverance will lead to hope. 
Speaking of hope, I had a pro- another professor, not the one I talked about before, who got cancer way too early, way too young. And she was, she was at the end, and her pastor was there, and her pastor told this story at her funeral. And she was laying there, and she was smiling. She was looking up at the ceiling. And she, was, she was tapping her chest like this, excited. She was looking up at the ceiling, but she wasn't looking at the ceiling. She was looking at something beyond it. And her pastor said, Ruthann, what are you thinking right now? And she didn't look over at her pastor. She just said, you know, it really is quite something to be this close. Paul says, it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They will be buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. Walter Brueggemann says it like this. We have not been given enough detail about the end to issue memos and create blueprints, but rather we have been given enough to write poems and sing songs. And what we do know is when we get there, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Pastor Michael, if you and the worship team would come up. He's given us just enough glimpses to be able to sing songs and write poems. And God has blessed us with a few of those glimpses. Maybe you close your eyes and let me read this to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. It is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. You can look up at me now. When we get there, that's the moment. When we ride off in our horse-drawn carriage, and now you help me finish the line, and we will live happily ever after. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We're so thankful that you did all the work to save us. Lord Jesus, We're so thankful that you were willing to suffer and die on a cross for us. We're so happy that you are who you said you were and that you're present to us even now by a miracle of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for always giving the glory to the Father and the Son. Thank you for coming and living in us and nudging us and drawing us to holiness step by step a little bit every day. We are only who we are, Holy Trinity because of what you've done for us. We praise you, and we get to praise you forever. In Jesus' name we pray.